This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Black Mirror is back. Why does it creep us out in the best way? You came across as fundamentally unlikable and really quite worthless. Oh my God. Oh, oh, oh. There's no genitals in space, please. Modern fucking companies. Everyone looks so fucking young. How is anybody looking into what's a sense of the fucking hierarchy? You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph for The Guardian. Black Mirror returns today for its sixth series. The dystopian anthology has been known to eerily predict some of the messed up things that happen in real life. And honestly, the series has got me in a chokehold. So what do we have in store this time round? Episode one is such a explosive start to the series. I can see exactly why they chose this one. Ellen E. Jones is a film and TV writer and Guardian columnist and host of Radio 4 film podcast Screenshot. It's about a woman played by Annie Murphy, who lots of people will know from Schitt's Creek, mm-hmm. um, who gets home from work one day to kind of chill out in front of uh, their streaming service, not called Netflix, called Streamberry, but then has the horrifying realisation that the streaming site, its big new show, is basically a kind of prestige TV adaptation of her life. What do you want to watch? Oh, Let's see what's on Streamberry. Kind of unfolding in front of her. Um, And it's called Joan is Awful, so it's obviously not a flattering depiction. New drama, Joan is Awful. Is that Selma Hayek? Uh, She even has your hair. That's not my hair. Well, it's a lot like your hair. And she's even called Joan. Okay, what even is this show? What is kind of the theme of this series? Is there anything that you're noticing that's coming up quite a lot? What makes it very different from other series of the show? The big kind of surprise, I guess, this series is that it's not as heavily focused on technology as it has Mm. been in the past. And it's also a lot of the episodes are set not in the future, but in some version of the past or the near past um, or the kind of present. So it it almost feels very much like Black Mirror, but 
at the same time throwing out of the window all the things that we thought made Black Mirror Black Mirror. And does that make it like more or less frightening? Because the past feels quite Mm. far away from us and other series felt like in the present or the near future. So it was like, oh, this is spooky. I think that thing of whether it's more or less creepy is really interesting because there's kind of a a sort of assumption about sci-fi that the thing that makes it's scary is the newness of the technology, right? It's something we don't quite understand. We're just getting to grips with, you know, the idea that robots are going to take over, become sentient and take over the the world, that kind of thing. It's the newness of it that we think is scary. But what this series of Black Mirror does is kind of is explore technology that we're actually quite familiar with. There's an episode called Lock Henry that's set up in Scotland, uh, which kind of fiddles about with VCR technology and uh, camcorder technology. So like kind of 80s, 90s stuff that we're all quite familiar with. Um, and in, in many cases have moved past um, and makes that scary. So you start to think maybe there's something inherent about technology that's scary. And obviously we've kind of dived straight into the show and the episodes coming up, but there might be people who are listening who, you know, haven't caught the Black Mirror bug, who haven't actually seen the show. Mm. How do you actually describe Black Mirror and its kind of early beginnings? Like, What was it about the series that really hooked people? Black Mirror comes from the very twisted, and I don't think he'd mind me saying that, brain of Charlie Brooker. Uh, Charlie Brooker actually is a bit of a kind of poacher turned gamekeeper in that he used to write about TV for The Guardian. And then he he went on to work with Chris Morris, the the guy behind Brass Eye on a show called Nathan Barley, which also Mm -hmm. has a kind of cult status now, which was sort of taking the mick out of Shoreditch Seensters back in the day. And then he went on to do Black Mirror, which I think is his magnum opus. Mm. He, he describes himself as an early adopter of anxieties. And I think Black Mirror is the kind of realisation of that. So it's a kind of tech paranoia, sci-fi horror show, but it's an anthology show as well. And that gives him a lot of freedom to break his mm. own rules um, and also to introduce new actors. You from Australia? No, I'm from Britain. So you got one of those crazy British names, Esmeralda or... Uh... Amnish. Black Mirror has got a really impressive range of kind of debut performances, or not necessarily debut, but first leady roles for people who've gone on to become superstars like Daniel Kaluuya, Rafe Spall, Letitia Wright was in one before Black Panther. So like a lot of a lot of big big British names. Yeah, particularly with people like Letitia Wright and Daniel Kaluuya, it was like quite cool to see these black actors in this yes. show that felt very British, but was also telling a story that wasn't necessarily about like blackness. It was they were just in a random sci-fi right. creepy people. And I was like, okay, cool. I really like the series. I want to get behind it. Speak! I haven't got a speech. I didn't plan words. I didn't even try to. I, I just knew I had to get here, to stand here, and I knew I wanted you to listen. A lot of the episodes really do get you thinking about how you engage, particularly online with other people, those relationships. Mm. It's like, it really gets me thinking all the time because I'm like, damn, like, if this was an, if I was doing a more extreme version of what I'm doing now, it would look like this show. And so I always feel like this show is teaching me about the ways that I behave online or the ways that I behave with technology and yeah. how it is affecting me or even affecting the people around me. The other thing we have to say about Black Mirror in terms of what made it such a huge success and why it kind of gets in people's brains is that it's got this reputation for eerie prescience. So mm. certain episodes seem to have predicted things that then came to pass. So there's one yes. called the National Anthem in which uh, Rory Kinnear's character plays a prime minister who has, shall we say, carnal relations with a pig. That was on television about yes. three or four years before that kind of scurrilous rumour which emerged from unofficial autobiography of David Cameron. This is a joke, right? <laughs> Ha ha, my co-ho. 
It's real. There's an, an episode about robot dogs, which seem to predict the um, Boston police force or the New York New NYPD's use of these kind of creepy sort of robot. That episode, I think it was called Metalheads, for me is so petrifying. So many of my nightmares are about that series <laughs> because it is, I have a lot of nightmares about being chased. And when I, after I watched that show, I was suddenly being chased in my nightmares by metal dogs. And it was simply because of that show. So gosh, Black Mirror <laughs> is deep in my psyche. Another one that actually has some like, has kind of predicted the future is, um, do you remember the episode Crocodile? The one where the character Mia and her boyfriend, they accidentally kill a cyclist while driving. And so they yes. throw his body into the water. They weigh yes. down with rocks. He sinks to the bottom. And then 15 years later, some investigator uncovers this body and they open the investigation back into this murder. And then basically in order to get the truth, Technology has evolved and the agent can use these sort of like tiny, like non-invasive devices that can kind of pick up on people's memories and display them on screen. Uh, I'll just hook you up to the recaller here. It's one of those um, memory dredges. <laughs> we prefer corroborators. That episode, listen, I had to stand up and I had to clap. I had to stand up and clap because I was like, this is some brilliant TV. But I also read that like, it's actually not too far from reality because in March, some scientists at Soccer University basically unveiled like a gallery of pictures that was produced by AI because the AI read human brain activity. And so the algorithm what? made like, Sorry. I know, I know. <laughs> the algorithm made a thousand images, including a teddy bear and an aeroplane, all from brain scans. And all of the images were made with 80% accuracy. So listen. <laughs> it's so mad but you're you're right it's, it's sometimes I, I always think about like what actually influences what is it like you know pop culture stretching our imaginations and helping us to imagine new technologies or is it the emergence of new technologies that help us to stretch our imagination for what we can see in mm. pop culture or see in tv and movies mm. like I, I like that stuff is really really interesting to me well what what charlie booker would say is that he it's not that he's actually you know um, superhuman predicting the future is not that he has psychic powers. It's just that he's he's got his ear out and he's listening for the kinds of tones and moods that are going on around us and just picking up on those things that are already there and then mm. extrapolating them into these into these stories. Because if you've got an eye for it and an ear for it, you can kind of see what's coming up down the line. And in fact, a lot yes. of you know classic what we think of as sci-fi or futuristic sci-fi is based on things that have already happened. You know, a good example is The Handmaid's Tale. Everyone was like, oh, God, wouldn't mm. it be horrifying if uh, all the women in America were, you know, enslaved? And people were like, well, actually, some women mm. have been enslaved in history in other parts yeah, of the world. Yeah. And, and uh, Margaret Atwood said that, you know, she based her, her book on things that already happened or, or were happening or had happened. You know, so it's, it's not you don't have to have psychic powers to be able to. Yeah. The and I have to throw it back to you. Do you have a favourite episode of, of Black Mirror? One that just, you watched it and it never left you? Well, I will say without spoilers that a couple of the ones in this series are now my new favourites. There's some really great episodes. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it, there's some really like well-realised episodes that kind of use the might of Netflix and the deep pockets of uh, Netflix and this the sort of inspiration of having a wider American audience and marry mm. that with like the sort of gritty, nasty... Britishness of the early days of Black Mirror and make something new and, and powerful. It's so interesting because Channel 4 broadcast the first two se series of Black Mirror and it had that, like you said, that very gritty, like, 
British, like gray, negative, dreary sort of feel to it. And then from season three, Netflix took it over. Do we know why that happened and what Charlie kind of Brooker had to say about it? Two major differences happened when it moved from Channel 4 to Netflix. One is that it suddenly was going to an international audience. Um, and then the other part of it was that it had an injection of cash. <laughs> and some shows can kind of go wayward when that happens. Like I remember talking to um, Ronan Bennett, who's the showrunner of uh, Top Boy, which is another show which had a similar trajectory and it started on Channel 4 and then went to Netflix. And he was saying, I mean, I think he handled this really well too, but but he was saying how like suddenly there was this temptation, like everyone was, like Drake loved the show. Samuel L. Jackson was calling him up wanting to be in the show. And he was like, I can't actually put Samuel L. Jackson in the show because there's just no way that he would be on a Hackney Council estate. <laughs> it just makes sense. But Black Mirror has that potential because of the anthology format. It's like Charlie Brooke has that freedom. And I think he's utilized those kinds of resources really well and kind of made them part of the Black Mirror universe and expanded the Black Mirror universe. The thing that made, I guess, Black Mirror so significant, also impacts when it first came out, was the sort of near future sci-fi-ness mm. of it all. And it was like, it, like, it was so realistic that sometimes things would happen in real life and you're like this yes. was like an episode of Black Mirror because it's there's something about it that feels so close but so far away so like unbelievable but also very real I want to know your kind of thoughts on are you noticing this sort of trend of near but far sci-fi happening across tv I think something really interesting has happened in the last couple of years and that is that the future feels like now. People were sharing recently pictures of like the New York skyline with all that kind of dust yes. in it and how it looked orange and like side by side with stills from um, from Blade Runner 2049, which is this 2017 future set film. It's like it looked exactly the same. And also technology is so integrated into our lives now in every aspect. It's not something that's futuristic and weird. That poses a bit of a problem for sci-fi, right? If, if sci-fi used to be about predicting the future and it feels like we're living in the future now, how do you mm. kind of progress with sci-fi? And I think Black, this series season of Black Mirror is one kind of answer to that. And part of it is that you, you explore the ways in which technology is inherently creepy. And then the other thing is like, it seems like there's a trend towards kind of simplifying our lives. Like people are like, we've got all this technology and does it make us happier? No. <laughs> so mm -mm. like there's a kind of like some of the younger generation are kind of coming off social media, Twitter's imploding, all this kind of stuff. So maybe the future will look a bit more like the past in that our lives will be a bit less tech saturated and a bit more mm -hmm. simplified so maybe that is part of what sci-fi is doing so it's, so there's like there's episodes in this series there's one called beyond the sea which is sort of set in the 60s but sort of not what's kind of special about black mirror as well is if it just if that was just a case of like some people wearing some nice mini dresses and having beehives and like some you know cool interiors then that would be a bit like he was just splashing that netflix netflix cash against the wall and not really doing anything with it but the, the the period setting is really integrated into the way the characters are written and the plot as well in a way that's really interesting and kind of fulfilling as a viewer. Sci-fi has us looking sideways at technology and the potential it holds. I always say please and thank you to the three Alexas I have in my house because I do not want them to rise up and kill me. I wanted to know if recent tech developments were something to fear and if I should start being friendlier to my smart TV. Brooker has always been really up on what is happening in the world of technology. When he can, he tries to pull from real tech. It is rarely science fiction as magic. It is science fiction as real tech. 
So I grabbed The Guardian's UK technology editor, Alex Hearn, to find out what is next on the horizon for gadgets that might ruin our lives. I think a lot of the the worrying stuff about tech that is just on the horizon is how it interacts with the world we already have. Generally, people think that futuristic tech is, is closer to reality than it is. Some of the dystopian outcomes of this tech are barely to do with the technology at all. So for instance, there was a case in Australia uh, of a woman who had an implantable uh, epilepsy monitoring system that was forcibly removed from her when the company uh, that made it went bust. This woman had spent three years as part of a medical trial and credited the device with transforming her life. It gave her essentially a pre-warning of a grand mal seizure. And then when the company went bust, the hardware that they owned was repossessed effectively. In the end, it wasn't quite that she was sort of dragged to the operating room kicking and screaming for brain surgery, but it was as close as the Australian legal system allowed that to happen. Once you sort of take the systems we already have for the lack of ownership of digital goods, the idea that, you know, the iPhone you own, you don't really own it, you own a license to use it, and you do not have absolute rights to use it as you see fit, you have the rights to use it that Apple has granted. Once you combine that with technology that is literally under your skin, you can start to get very dystopian outcomes without really needing to change much about the technology at all. Yeah. And I was doing a little bit of like research and Googling and trying to see, you know, what is kind of emerging or what is, what do people find worrying about the future technology? Um, and some of the ones I found are really interesting and I would love to get your takes on whether or not this is something that <laughs> is like imminent or is just like, this is nothing. So the first one was this thing called smart dust technology, which was these were tiny robots or devices that can kind of detect light, temperature, vibration, and they are like as small as a grain of sand. And I think the idea was, you know, this could be something that's super helpful, but it could also be something that's used to spy on people and you wouldn't even be able to detect it because it's so small. Have you heard about this technology? Does it, is it out there? Is it exists? Is there smart dust inside my house somewhere, my dusty house that I never dust and now the government is spying on me through this this grain of sand no so look smart dust <laughs> is a sort of branding for rfid chips the the same sort of mm -hmm. stuff that powers an oyster card i think it's a pretty classic thing that felt like the future about five to ten years ago what we found is that tracking the ambient location of every physical good in the world just isn't really worth it. You know, while you are inside a supermarket's distribution chain, great. Yeah, it's really good to know where your pallet of baked beans are. But once those baked beans leave the door, no one actually really wants to carry on tracking it as it gets in your car, as it, as it goes, as it sits in your shelf. There are theoretical ways that you can argue that they could be good. You can, you can sort of say, hey, it would allow you to have end-to-end -end recycling. But in practice, the boring cost of doing things like hooking up computer systems to actually let that happen, it wasn't worth it. So the, the good news is no one's spying on you through baked beans. The bad news is it's, it's because you're too boring to. I have another one that isn't very health related, but does feel quite current, actually. But I think its potential is quite interesting. It was this idea that you can now sort of print anything. And with 3D printing technology evolving and becoming a lot more like even accessible, so many people have access to 3D printers now. There's this worry that someone could like download an algorithm of a weapon and print this weapon in their home. And there were kind of some stories about British police making large, large seizures of 3D printed firearms. I wonder, 
kind of what your thoughts are about the scares of being able to print absolutely anything and if everyone has access to a 3d printer the same way they have a regular printer what does that kind of mean for the future the good news is 3d printing in that sense has progressed much slower than we thought it would while mm. you can now buy a desktop 3d printer it's it's a hobbyist thing and along the same lines a lot of the stuff that you can 3d print is stuff that you can make at home and 3d printed guns are along those lines. They are not science fiction. They are they are science fact. One of the very first stories I ever wrote for The Guardian was about a man who had created designs for a 3D printed gun and put them on the internet as a sort of free speech and Second Amendment argument combined. Oh my God. Essentially, you can't print bullets and you can print guns. In the UK, the, the issue is you don't really have access to bullets. In the US, the issue is that you do have access to guns. In both cases, it's been surprising how little impact the possibility of 3D printing a gun has been. The main exception has been its ability to get around gun tracing regulation. But that's sort of less about the ability to 3D print anything and more about a particular type of regulatory loophole in the American gun tracking system. And so I've given you kind of all of these examples about kind of emerging technologies and you've been able to lessen a lot of my fear <laughs> about them and about their potential but do you think that it is a good thing to be skeptical about how fast tech is evolving and do you feel that you know film and tv give give us a way to express and validate these fears i would say skepticism is good but i'd say that the current media environment the skepticism should be in the other direction you should be skeptical that tech is in fact evolving as quickly as the industry wants to convince you it is you should be skeptical less that oh is it good that everything's changing so fast and more skeptical about actually is the world going to be that different in a decade's time? Or, or is this quite a convenient way of brushing aside the problems of today by going, well, they're all going to be different in 10 years' time? I think Black Mirror does an incredibly good job of taking the opposite side of that argument, of going, what if we listened to tech, agreed with tech that everything was going to change, but disagreed about how great it was? But in general, I think the sort of scepticism that... Uh, if you are engaging deeply with tech, the sort of scepticism that is sometimes lacking is really working out which aspects of these promises of, of world-changing technology are going to come to pass and which are a promise of a tomorrow that is distracting from today. Let's take a virtual minute and when we come back, we'll hear about how science fiction meets science facts. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back, alien superstars. More and more sci-fi is set eerily close to today. Think of The Last of Us, Her, and The Handmaid's Tale. I can just see myself in these stories. It feels like the lines between science and fiction are becoming more easily blurred. And maybe that's because the world feels so dystopian. Dr. Amy Chambers is a senior lecturer in film and media studies at Manchester Metropolitan. I remember after The Matrix came out and, you know, loads of people who kind of believe in conspiracy theories started saying things like, oh, you know, this thing is a glitch in a Matrix. I do wonder if like there is a kind of like consequence of like sci-fi validating some of people's like conspiratorial beliefs or them looking to to sci-fi shows to be like, okay, cool, this has happened here. It's not completely ridiculous because I identify with it. So part of it must be real in, in some way, shape or form. There's definitely interchange between science, science, real science and science fiction in the sense that they inspire each mm. other. But good science fiction has to be believable. There has to be that sort of like element where you could just think this could maybe happen. Good science fiction or, or believable science fiction can have that impact. But I have to say, when it comes to sort of the, the glitch in the matrix, it's that impact as well of science fiction on how we talk about things day to day. So something like Handmaid's Tale mm. that becomes sort of shorthand for for these types of things or particular episodes, again, of, of Black Mirror, where you have sort of particular images and ideas that just become shorthand. I mean, the fact that we use the term Black Mirror so frequently as well it is sort of uh, down to that sort of connection between science fiction and our our sort of lived reality. So you don't kind of feel like science fiction maybe has like a bit of a, I don't know, a responsibility to overemphasize the fiction so people don't run away with the narratives. There's a responsibility on the behalf of, of media producers to reflect the society that we're in, but also how science fiction works as a ethical processing system so it takes the big ideas from science extrapolates them to a greater extent and then goes okay ethically this is where we sit this is why you know Jurassic Park the scientists didn't stop to think if they should they knew that they could but they didn't think to stop it has an important place in our contemporary scientific society to engage with those issues around ethics around why science does particular things and how people understand that through the stories that are told um, about science and science fiction. And I I wonder if there are any ways where you think like the reverse almost happens, because I was listening to a really interesting podcast called Switched on Pop, and they were talking about Daft Punk, and they were going through all of Daft Punk's albums. And in the very first episode, they talk about basically the the emergence of the robot, like not only in science, but in pop culture. And they kind of look at things like um, R2-D2 and the way that even the sounds of R2-D2 were created, like the machines that were created, the synthesizer that was kind of further used in music, but also how 
this particular character informed our ideas of what a robot is and what a robot does and how it can be dangerous and how it cannot be dangerous. The origins of the word robot and this whole idea of being like a human helper. I guess it might be a bit of a reach, but even when you think of things like, you know, your Alexa or your Google Home or the kind of internet of things kind of embodying this idea of, of a robot. And I wonder if like science in some ways has taken from the world of science fiction or taken from the world of fiction to develop their ideas. The idea of the robot to have a like clear material form makes it easier for you to conceptualise, but it then also extrapolates into uh, the Terminator. <laughs> so there's a sort of running joke that anytime there's an article about AI, that uh, whoever does the pictures uh, at the newspaper whacks a <laughs> Uh, Terminator image there if in doubt whack on a Terminator Um, and everyone's like instantly end of the world AI is going to kill everyone and you're like "Uh, that's not what this article was about but go on again it's that inspiration of science fiction I've done work on talking to scientists and how they have grown up with science fiction and how reading about science through science fiction inspired them Uh, for some women scientists that's seeing themselves in that fiction of seeing a woman scientist that they can then project themselves into for some of it it's to do with technologies and how technologies are then uh, developed so you have sort of like the the stories about things like Star Trek's communicators and the flip phone those being uh, connected that that as a space has, has sort of introduced sort of ideas for technologies that have then been developed into real world technologies yeah and it's really interesting as well because sci-fi is often a place to explore a lot of like social and cultural issues like without necessarily being like extremely explicit about what it is like they use certain characters certain worlds certain imaginations certain technologies in order to basically play out what we're kind of seeing in society and so people are able to engage with it in a kind of distant way. And it comes, it kind of helps you to, to, I guess, better understand an issue about being in the middle of the issue. And I read this really interesting um, piece of research about how a lot of young people who read sci-fi have really good mental resilience or it helps them to build mental resilience because they're able to deal with heavy issues, but in a world removed from their own. I mean, science fiction allows us to have those sort of contemporary conversations in a separate space uh rod serling of the one of the writers or main writer for the twilight zone used to talk about the fact that you could have an alien say something that you would never have been able to write for a politician to say so you could have these really sort of and he's talking as as well about star trek and Mm. and sort of the the texts of the 60s and 70s that had these types of political discussions that you just couldn't have had on a regular um, drama because there's a like plausible deniability as well. So Mm. if you have an alien or a character in a sci-fi say, you can go, well, this is just fiction. It's just sci-fi. There's this sort of like disconnect, but at the same time, it allows you to have those important, again, it's coming back to this idea of the ethical positioning of science fiction, of having this space where we can go, okay, we've got this piece of technology. What might it do in the future? What do we need to think about in terms of protecting ourselves? It makes total sense now why we're so weirded out by near future sci-fi. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to watch it and I'm about to go home and binge the entire Black Mirror series in one sitting. While always being very polite to my fridge.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a review. Before you go, I want to tell you about a special Guardian event. Award-winning comedians Lenny Henry and Ramesh Ranganathan will be discussing Lenny's life, loss, and his experience in the media industry. Join them on Wednesday, the 26th of July. You can find details on the Guardian Live website. We will put the link in our podcast page. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Maliseto, original music by Axel Kakute, and the executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. See you next Thursday and may the force be with you. Bye. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.